At first, it was just one sheep per day. But as the deadly dragon grew more powerful, he demanded more and more. Soon it was the people of Silene themselves, so intense was his insatiable hunger, his desperate desire for more and more. Until, until one day a courageous knight named George agrees to confront the dragon. After a long and bloody battle, George finally defeats the cruel beast, saves the princess, and rescues the town. With what weapon did George slay the dragon? A spear? A lance? A sword? Maybe, just maybe, the dragon was slain by love. Welcome to Slain by Love, your weekly sermon podcast from the pulpit of St. George's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. From our psalm this morning, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole life, with my whole heart, for thou is the Lord, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. Amen. Good morning, St. George's. <laughs> Questions are sometimes hard to answer. We may not know the answers. We may be confused by the questions, or we may not want to answer the question, but we don't want to lie. Over 40 years ago, I worked as a nurse at a major cancer research center. I was a day shift nurse in pediatrics, and I was assigned a 12-year-old Turkish-American boy named Ihan. Ihan had been sick for many years. He had bone cancer. His left leg was amputated at the hip. And since he had metastases to the lungs, the doctor removed part of his lung, and he had tubes in his chest. Prognosis was not good. Ihan had a demanding attitude, especially at night. In the morning, the night nurses would complain about him endlessly because he was always ringing the call bell. When I was assigned to IHAM for the first time, I have to admit I wasn't thrilled because he was known to be a difficult patient. So when I took care of IHAM, I asked him why he rang the call light so often at night. He told me that patients seemed to die at night and he didn't want to be alone. I dealt with his demanding attitude by kidding him about it, and I promised that if, if I was with another patient when he called, I would get to him as soon as possible, and we soon became very close. Ihan's family were secular Muslims. They didn't practice. Ihan would say he was a Muslim because he was proud of his Turkish heritage, but when the chaplain got an Ayman to see him, Ayan screamed to get him out. It turned out that Ayan's father was a grave digger for the Catholic archdiocese, and Ayan went to private Catholic school for free. Ayan knew all about Jesus. He even explained to me transubstantiation one day. 
I have believed in Jesus. Although I was careful, I didn't want to seem like I was proselytizing. I asked his parents if I could get him a Bible, and they readily said yes. During breaks, I would read to I Him from the New Testament, and he would ask for his favorite passages. Read me again about the resurrection and the life, he would say. Read to me about Jesus and the life-giving waters. Read to me about heaven. He was even concerned about his father going to heaven. He said, suppose his father took the life-giving water from Jesus and snuck in but didn't believe, would he get into trouble? I said, no. The Catholic priest visited I him and gave him communion. I him was more at peace. We were able to get I him home one more time. When he returned from home, there wasn't a bed on the unit, so he waited in a wheelchair in the clinic upstairs. It was the end of my shift, so I went upstairs to see him. Then he asked me a hard question. He said, am I going to die this time? I found I was unable to give the answer. Put my hand on his shoulder and said, I hand, you know that I love you. We both know the answer to that question. Please don't make me say it. And I had leaned over and kissed me on the nose. It was the last time I saw him because he died on my day off. But he died during the day with his parents and other staff surrounding him with love. In today's gospel, Jesus asked his disciples a hard question, one that some probably didn't want to answer. They come to Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus has already identified himself as the Son of Man in chapter 8, so he's basically asking about himself. The disciples say some other people, John the Baptist, who died in chapter 14, so it can't be him. Elijah, who was supposed to come before the Messiah, and Jeremiah, and there are references to Jeremiah throughout Matthew. Jesus asked the more difficult and personal question. He asked the disciples, but who do you say I am? Jesus is very direct here, and Peter seems to blurt out, you are the Messiah, or the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says that Peter is blessed because the only way Peter could know this is if Jesus' Father in heaven revealed it to him. Then Jesus makes a play on the name Peter. 
In Greek, the word for rock is Petros. Peter is the rock on which the church is built. It's because of his confession. The church is built on Jesus as the Christ. The keys, going back to Isaiah, symbolize and confirm that God's kingdom authority passes through Jesus to Jesus' disciples and then to the church, as seen in Matthew 18, 18. Present-day disciples should act with fearful responsibility of knowing that they represent the reality and authority of God's kingdom in the world. More about that later. The lectionary made a strange choice in breaking up Peter's confession and his later attempt to, give G to get Jesus to avoid the cross. I'm not going to say too much about it because it's next week's reading. It's the first of three texts where Jesus predicts his passion and resurrection. Jesus will suffer, die, and on the third day be raised. Then we have Peter the rock worrying out that this must never happen. Peter is not now the rock, but Satan. He is a stumbling block because this is not divine. We must each deny ourselves, take up our own crosses, and follow Jesus. How do we do that? One way is what we do with personal suffering, the way I hand did, aligning ourselves with Christ's own suffering. But the other way, as already mentioned, is what we do as church. We have been given the keys of authority. How do we handle that? Paul gives us the way in the exhortation in Romans chapter 12. This is not only an exhortation, but the gospel. It begins, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Let's stop there for a moment. Paul's going to ask the church to do some things, but first and foremost, that can't happen without the prior mercy of God. All throughout Romans, Paul makes it clear that our salvation is a pure gift of God's mercy. Everything we are and everything we do is because God's mercy enables us. The entire existence of believers should be sacrificial worship of God in response to the sacrifice of God's Son. So before we even get to how God wants us to live, we find we'll be able to do it because God has poured out God's mercy on us. What does God want from us in the church? Present our bodies as a living sacrifice. What this means is that God wants our whole selves, everything we are, to work within the church community. Our whole selves are now holy and acceptable to God. We must not be conformed to what everyone else does, 
but be transformed in mind by the Spirit of God. This leads to the ability to discern the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and even perfect. In order to do this, we have to have the virtue of humility. That's what Paul means here when he writes that we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves and have sober judgment. Let me first tell you what humility is not. It's not low self-esteem. It's not sitting around thinking we're stupid when we're not. It's an acceptance of our abilities and our limitations and knowing we need other people to do the work of the church. The good of the whole community has to be foremost in our minds. That's why Paul says this is a living sacrifice. It's a dynamic self-offering to God and to each other. Everything goes to God and our fellow members. This is especially true during the Eucharist. Thomas Cranmer bases Eucharistic prayer, his Eucharistic prayer, which is in a right one based on Romans 12. It says, and we here offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls, and bodies to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee, humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may be made one body in him, and that he may dwell in us and we in him. The Eucharist is not just about a personal relationship with Christ, although that's important. It's about the whole community gathered as the body of Christ. Finally, Paul talks about the different gifts we had. This diversity is a free gift of grace. It can also be a source of tension. Not every member has every gift, and this is what it means to accept our limitations. Can you imagine the cacophony if everyone thought they were an exhorter? This would not lead to the unity of one body, but it would be divisive. One body is the goal. May each of us find a place in the body of Christ. May we share this body to the world. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the pulpit of St. George's Austin, where the love of God in Christ slays our enemies, our fears, our guilt, our worries. How are they slain? Only by love. Special thanks to the good folks of St. George's and especially to that masterful media guru, Liam Dolan Henderson. See you next week. Peace and be well.